0: This recording is from Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona. More information available at tempe.redemptionaz.com. Today's scripture is Mark 5, verses 1 through 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gersenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Tyler Johnson. I am the lead pastor of Redemption Church. Redemption Church is a multi-congregational church, so Ricardo Stewart is the lead pastor here. And today he's actually preaching at Redemption Gateway, way far out in the Southeast Valley. And Cody Kimmel from Redemption Arcadia, you just got led in music by him and the Arcadia band. David Blakeman, your typical uh, music director here, is over at Redemption Arcadia, and I have the opportunity to be here to fill Ricardo's slot while he's at Gateway. So it's great to be with you guys. We are in the book of Mark, so if you would take a Bible... Open up to Mark, we read verses one through five, but we're actually gonna work through Mark five, one through 20. Um, So if you have an app, open your app. If you've got a Bible, open your Bible. And as you do, I'm gonna pray. And I'm actually gonna ask you to pray uh, along with me. Father, we come before you this morning to hear uh, the words of God, your words. God, we pray that for us today, they would be strong words and that they would be powerful words. Father, you have sent Jesus to meet us to proclaim good news to the poor. There are many of us in here this morning that need good news. You've sent Jesus to give sight to the blind and there are many of us in here who are not seeing as we should be seeing or as we want to be seeing. God, you have told us that you sent Jesus to set those free who are enslaved. God, all of us want freedom. And God, there are many of us who are ostracized and oppressed. We pray that you would meet us through your word. You promise that it will not return void. God, you are the only one who knows all of the situations and the stories in this room, and so I pray that you would work your wonders and your ways. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Keep your hand raised if you need a Bible and uh, the folks will get you one if you need one. Mark chapter five, we are gonna get uh, right at it. It says this, starting in verse one, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. So they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. Just before this, Jesus has gathered his disciples on a boat, they get out on the boat and do you remember last week, what happens? There's a huge storm. Many versions say it's a, it's a gale, it's just an enormous storm. Jesus is asleep, the disciples come to him and they say, do you even care about us? And I think at that moment Jesus says to them what he told them when they were getting in the boat. He said, get in the boat, we're going to the other side. So at that moment they think they're about to die, they say, do you even care about us? And I think there's a level in which Jesus looked at them and says, did I not say we were going to the other side? And at that moment, he calms the wind and the waves, and the, ma- the men in the boats say this phrase, which is really what the whole entirety of all of the Gospels is about, and so definitely the Gospel of Mark, and they say, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? That's the question of the Gospels. Who is this man, Jesus? That's the question most of us who came in here today come at some level asking. Whether we are believers or unbelievers, Jesus is fascinating. And to say it simply, he's very important and very significant. One of the smartest non-Christian men to ever live, and he's just one of the smartest men to ever live, but he wasn't a Christian, was Albert Einstein. And he said this about Jesus. He said, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud, which is a Jewish religious text. I am a Jew, he's therefore stating he's not a Christian, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. I'm enthralled by Jesus. No one can read the Gospels of which this Gospel of Mark is one without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. Now he says this, no myth is filled with such life. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. No man can dispose of Christianity with a bon mot. Bon mot just means Jesus is so huge. He's so colossal, he's so fascinating and significant that you can't sit in this room, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, and go, ah, Christianity. Because Christianity fully and entirely revolves around this man, Jesus, whom Einstein was enthralled with. So believer or unbeliever, you can't just push Jesus aside. We've got to ask the question, who is this man? Now, we're Christians, and this is a Christian church, so we, when we chose the Gospel of Mark, have a very specific, intentional purpose for it, and it's to present Jesus as the Bible presents Jesus. Pastor Tim Keller in New York City says this about a study of Jesus. He says, I trust that you will find the figure of Jesus worthy of your attention, regardless where you stand on your faith journey, We desire that you would find the figure of Jesus worthy of your intention. Unpredictable yet reliable, gentle yet powerful, authoritative yet humble, human yet divine. I urge you to seriously consider the significance of his life in your own. Now, today's passage is all of those things. You'll see of Jesus that he is unpredictable yet reliable, he's powerful authoritative, yet he's humble, he's human yet divine, and so we're urging you, again, regardless of where you are on this journey of faith, to seriously consider the significance of Jesus' life, not at a distance, but in your very own life. Now, the Gospel of Mark is all about Jesus. They came to the other side, to the country of the Gerasenes. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, this section of Mark 5, 1 through 20, starts with Jesus stepping out of the boat and ends with him stepping back in the boat. It's all about Jesus. The disciples are rarely mentioned. It's fundamentally about Jesus and an encounter with one man. But it's fundamentally about Jesus so we're gonna ask these who, why, what, where questions a little out of order from the way you typically or rhetorically say them who, why, what, where we're gonna start with this why does Jesus go there and then we're gonna ask the who question who are these two men that are primarily at the center of this and then ultimately what now is to be done what is done by the people in this scene and in this real life story, and what's to be done by us. So why does he go there? Who are the men? What should we ultimately do about it? So here's the question. Why does Jesus go there? Jesus started out in the last chapter telling his disciples, get in the boat, for we're going to the other side. Now the other side, the land of the Gerasenes, when they ultimately get there, is a land of the Gentiles. Here's how we know that. This passage talks about pigs. Now you're going, What does that have to do with anything? Now, the reason you think that is because you're pig-eating Gentiles, okay? That's the reason you ask that. Pig's no big deal. But the Jews at the time, pigs are unclean. They don't eat pig. Like the Muslims, pork is unclean and so therefore they don't engage with it. Now there's this huge scene where pigs are being raised by herdsmen. Now that's not a Jewish area. So this is the very beginning point of Jesus crossing into a land that's primarily Gentile showing that his mission was for all peoples, not just for the Jews. But Jesus then gets out of the boat and as he gets out of the boat he's encountered by a man who is a very dangerous man. A man who this passage says lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. No one. He walks into a very dangerous environment. So here's the question. Why does Jesus go there? Why does he go to an unclean land? walk off the boat into an environment that's unclean, amongst the tombs, amongst the dead, into a man who has extremely been dangerous as testified to by this entire city. So think about this for a minute. Jesus starts this trek off to this place on the other side of the sea. Why does he gather all of his disciples to get into a boat, to take them across the sea, to encounter a massive storm only then to put them in danger there, to still it, to say to them, have faith, to keep going, to step out of a boat into an unclean land to encounter an unclean, extremely dangerous man. When Jesus started his ministry, when he said what it was all about, Luke 4, 18 speaks of him quoting a passage from the book of Isaiah. And here's what Jesus says, which will help us answer this question of why did he go there. He said this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now as we'll read through this, you'll see that the man Jesus encounters, that the disciples watch, and the herdsmen oversee Jesus' encounter with a man who is definitely poor. He's naked and he's living in the tombs, isolated, ostracized. There's a man Jesus is going to, this very man who is definitely blind and not seeing because he's not in his right mind. And this man is definitely enslaved. He is definitely oppressed. He has definitely been ostracized. And Jesus said, it's to those to whom I'm sent to proclaim, to set free, to give sight. Jesus goes to the other side for one fundamental reason. There was a man there, a man, who is in need of God's power and of God's mercy. There's one reason. What's so unbelievable to me about this passage, if you slow down long enough to see it, is so much happens from the time he asks his disciples to get in the boat, goes across the sea, encounters a storm, stills the storm, goes to the other side, and his interaction of getting out of the boat and getting back into the boat is fundamentally for one man. And you're gonna see how many it affects, but it's fundamentally an encounter with one man. So who is this man? That's the question, right? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man who goes all the way across the sea to step out of the boat to encounter one man? I would submit to you we will never answer the question of who is this man, Jesus Christ, without slowing down long enough to say who is this man who encounters him when he steps out of the boat? This scary man, this crazy man, this psychotic man, this dangerous man, who is that man? Because most of the time in our own lives when we encounter those who are crazy, who are scary, who are psychotic, who are dangerous, We rarely slow down long enough to go, Who is that man? Or who is that woman? And I really believe right now Jesus would be saying to all of us, You will never understand me unless you slow down long enough to ask questions of real people. Whether they be psychotic, whether they be crazy, whether they be dangerous, ask the questions. So think about this, this man who is running around the tombs naked, screaming at the top of his lungs, whom is breaking shackles and chains who nobody wants to be around, why they've tried to shackle him is because he's dangerous, why they've tried to put him in chains is because he's dangerous, why they have ostracized him to where he is totally alone is because they want nothing to do with him. But this man has a name. He had a family who gave him a real name. The scriptures don't even testify to it. Most of the people of his city never knew it. He was the crazy man. The man who dwells amongst the dead, who is unclean because of that. But he had a name. At one point, he was a real child who ran in real streets with real friends, who had a real family. And now he's isolated and he's alone. This is a real man who at some point in his life had real dreams who now night and day has not dreams but nightmares that reoccur over and over and over again. This man is real, and I would submit to you if we don't slow down long enough to ask questions, we'll never understand Jesus, and in so doing, we'll never understand really really experience who we are meant to be. Cuz here's what's happened, here's what happens. When we look at people and we pass by them and we turn them into objects and we don't slow down long enough to ask real questions, like their name, where they came from, how did they get in the situation they're in? We turn them into objects and in so doing, we objectify ourselves. Because God has made us, as human beings, to humanize other people, love other people. And when we don't, our hearts get hard. Our eyes turn in on ourselves. So we have to slow down long enough to ask questions like, how did the forces of darkness take hold of this man's life? What is it that he did that got him here? or what was it that was done to him that got him here? Because this is a real man who's encountering real torment and in so doing has experienced unbelievable harm. Now he's living amongst the tomb, the passages say, living with an unclean spirit living in such a way that other peoples try to bind him, but nobody could bind him because of his strength, living with superhuman strength. Because this man is not just psychologically deranged, but the passage says that he's demonically oppressed. When Jesus comes upon him, you'll see in this passage very clearly, Jesus asks him, what is your name, in verse nine? And he replies to Jesus, my name is Legion, for we are many. The name Legion, the word legion, goes along with Roman armies, likely up to five to six thousand men. In saying the name, what's being declared by the demons is this is not a man who's been oppressed or possessed by one demon, but by thousands of them, which give an account for his superhuman strength. And yet, still, this is a real man who has lives amongst the dead in the tombs with an unclean spirit. No one can bind me a superhuman strength. Therefore he's ostracized and alone and he's in incredible agony. Now look at verse five, because this will speak to us about the agony that this man is in. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now look at that, not just at nighttime, not just in the daytime, but night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, which speaks about he's isolated and alone and ostracized. He was sometimes, no, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now if you look at that phrase crying out, there's something amazing about the phrase crying out, and when I read it, It reminded me of the Jews in Egypt when they're crying out because of their oppression and it says God hears their cries. But you know what's amazing about that passage with the Jews in Egypt? It never says that the Jews in Egypt were crying out to God but it says God heard their cries. Psalm 18 speaks about this, that in our distress the Lord hears our cries. I'm not certain that this man was ever crying out to God, but he was crying out because of his agony. Night and day, all the time, he's crying out because he is so agonized by what's inside of him and by what's around him and likely by what he's lost. Sometimes we read these passages about the demonic and we think only about the demons, but the demons have come upon a real man It's never just demon or man. There's moments that it's the demons manifesting themselves and moments it's the man. The man is grieving his loss. He is in agony What's over going on. That's why he's cutting himself with stones, not some of the time, but all of the time. And crying out. The cutting himself with stones. It's only recently in my adult life that I've um, really had to think about people that are self-mutilating that cut themselves. And many times you'll encounter a family or friends of someone who's cutting themselves and they just don't understand. Why in the world would anybody do that to themselves, they'll say. And yet the more you sit with people who do cut and the more you read about them, they will say that there's such internal agony inside of them that the cutting is what provides the relief from the internal agony. Just to feel Pain, physical releases them from the internal agony that was put upon them through whatever reasons. Painful experiences in the past, horrible torment internally or psychologically in their own heads. And so they cut themselves for relief and reprieve. That to feel anything different than what they feel like inside, they cut themselves. This man didn't have blades, he didn't have knives, so he took stones and he cut himself continually and was crying out. Now what's amazing, if God hears us cry in our distress and the Bible says about Jesus that Jesus said, I only do what I hear my father saying. I only go where my father tells me to go. I'm convinced that God heard the cries of this man and God spoke to the son and said, cross the sea, get in a boat, and go to this man. So Jesus gets in a boat, and he gathers his disciples to endure all of the danger of a storm to encounter this incredibly dangerous man. Jesus gets out, and the man comes at him. Ken Geyer, who's a theologian, has an amazing poetic line about this man. And he says this, now this man's body had become a beachhead for Satan. And it is on to this beachhead that Jesus now lands. Think about that. I'm going to say that again. When you think about a beachhead, we think about Normandy and the American troops Storming the beaches of Normandy and landing. And if you've seen any World War II footage or World War II movie, you see these men step out onto the beach and, they're and they establish a beachhead there. And Ken Geyer says this man's body had become the beachhead of Satan. And here's what Jesus does He rides a ship right up and lands on the beachhead of this man. You know why? Because Jesus doesn't let Satan win. Because Jesus is about proclaiming good news to the poor. He's about the recovery of sight to the blind. He's about the restoration of the ostracized. He's about the setting of the captives free. And he is saying to us, you will never understand me if you don't ask questions of this man. You will never understand God in a cup, in a corner with a cup of coffee saying, God, reveal yourself to me. You know God when you're amongst the people whom he made in his own image, whom are experiencing poverty, whom are experiencing lifelessness, who are experiencing alienation, who are experiencing being ostracized, who are experiencing enslavement and oppression, who are experiencing real life. So now the text drives us directly, now that we've asked questions of that name, the demonized man, the demon possessed man. We now say, Who is this man? Jesus, like the disciples did. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? But here's what's amazing about this passage. We get the questions answered of who is Jesus by the demons. By the demons. Watch this, verse 6. And when Jesus, when he, the demon possessed man, saw Jesus from afar, He ran and fell down before him. Now, imagine this scene. These guys have just come off of a storm where they think they're going to die. Jesus stills it. It says they're fearful. They're scared, and they're going, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Now they come up to shore, and probably quite a bit of distance, they see a man Off on the land, running around, screaming at the top of his lungs, cutting himself with stones, and as they get closer, they see his body, and there's dried blood, and there's fresh blood pouring down his body, and he continues to lacerate himself, and they're going, what are we doing, right, and they get closer, and he's screaming, and then they land, Jesus steps out of the boat, and the guy runs like an NFL 60, directly at him, just running right. at him. Now imagine if you're the disciples, you're thinking, we thought we were gonna die there, we are gonna die now, right? He's got chains on his body, he's running at him, they're going, what on God's green earth is happening? He runs and then Jesus is there and it says, he falls at his feet and prostrates himself in silence. In silence, And now he's crying out. Once he was crying out in agony, now he's crying out in a confession, in a declaration. And here's what he says. Crying out with a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Guys, think about this. Slow down in the passage enough. You're the disciples, you're going, this, is, this crazy guy's running at us. He now falls to his face, prostrate before him, looks up, and he goes, Jesus, what do you want with me, son of the most high God? Look at what he said. He's used Jesus' personal name. He didn't say Christ, which means Messiah, which isn't Jesus' last name. It's a title, Right? <laughs> but he says his real name, Jesus. That'd be like him falling, if and going, Tyler, but then he wouldn't be able to say the next phrase, son of the most high God. But he's using, you are a real man, who, were given, who was given a real name by his parents, by Joseph and Mary, that your name would be Jesus, a real personal name. He says, Jesus, you're a real man. But then he says, son of the most high God. Now most of his disciples in that boat are Jews. They know the title son of God. And they know it's labeled at the Christ, the Messiah, who is the Lord, who is God. God is the Messiah. So the declaration of these thousands of demons, legion, is that this man, Jesus, a real personal, in using the personal name, is the son of the most high God. And then they say, and plead with him, I adjure you by God, at the end of verse seven, do not torment me. So they, they acknowledge Jesus is a person, he's the son of God, and in being the son of God, he's God who has the power and authority to judge, to torment. Do you know that demons knew Jesus before he was born in a manger? That's what the Bible says. The demons knew him long before he was born in a manger. The demons know him. The book of James says, even the demons believe and shudder. They know the truth about God. They know the truth about Jesus Christ. You know why? Because Christ made them. Colossians chapter one says that Jesus Christ is the supreme ruler of all the earth because by him all things were made. All things were created by him and for him. The demons were made for Christ. Satan was made for Christ. In their pride they rebelled and fell. And angels became demons and Lucifer became Satan. But he made them, that's why Colossians one says that by him and for him all things were made, things in heaven and things on earth, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. That language, thrones, dominions, rulers or powers, every biblical scholar says speaks of the dark forces of the spiritual reality. They know Jesus because they were made by him and they were made for him. So the the demons can make this man's body fall to the ground and say, you, the man, Jesus Christ, the young boy who grew up in Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, whom was the carpenter's son, who became a carpenter, you are the son of the most high God, who has the authority, the power, and the persuasion to bring forth the penalty of our demise. That is why they say, are you now going to kill us at other points in Mark's gospel? At other points in the gospels, they say, our time has not yet come. They know the future. They know Revelation 20.10 says that God will do away finally and fully with Satan and all his minions and all the fruit of their work of sin and death. They know who he is. They're declaring maybe more truth, I would argue more truth than these disciples even know in this moment. But they have incredible gall, these demons. Because they say, I adjure you. They're trying to persuade, they're trying to command. Don't torment me. And then later on down, they don't just adjure, but they begin to beg. I adjure you not to torment me. For he was saying to them, come out of the man with an unclean spirit. And Jesus asked, what's your name? He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Verse 10, and he, the man with the legion of demons, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out into the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us into the pigs and let us enter them. Now, what gall? Like what, what is it that makes demons, demons think that they can ask God to be merciful to them. Right, what, what is that, what do they possibly think? Here's God, you've rebelled against him, you continue to work against his ways in incredible fashion, you're out as the enemy, Jesus tells us that the enemy is out to seek, to kill and to destroy and this man's life is a perfect picture of that. And now, Satan's minions, these demons are there pleading with Jesus to have mercy upon them. I adjure you, don't torment me. Begging him, don't send us out into the country. Let us go into the pigs. Now, I gotta be honest at this moment. Watching what these demons have done to this man, if I'm one of those disciples watching this and was able to talk, which I wouldn't have been able to talk, um, but if I was able to talk at that moment, I would have been like, Jesus, pin him down Get pins or whatever you use to get demons and just start torturing them. Torment them to the highest possible level. Just pinpricks in their throats and down their bot. Do that. Torment them. And then if they ask you for something, let us not go into the country, send them into the country. (laughs) That's how a lot of us respond, right? We see the Boston bomber get the death penalty and we're like, torment them. Kill him and do it slow. And I'm sorry, but I see that stuff on social media and I go, don't even dare say you follow Jesus. That's a real kid. And I in no way condone who committed a horrific, horrific, horrific act of violence. But he's a man made in the image of God. These are demons. And you want to know what's crazy? God grants their request. Jesus Christ grants their request. You don't believe me? Look. It was a herd of pigs feeding on the hillside, verse 12, and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. Deal with that. You follow Jesus, deal with that. He gives them permission. They ask for leniency. Why did they have the gall to ask? Because they know Jesus. They know that this man is the son of the most high God. They know he has the power and the persuasion to judge. They know he's the Lord God of the universe by whom and through whom everything that has been made was made and they also know that this Lord is not just a Lord of judgment but that he's a Lord of leniency. He's a Lord of mercy. He's a Lord of grace. Now demons have the ability to be saved? No. No. But they plead for mercy to a God who is merciful because, and that's why they can say, I adjure you. I think right there they're going, based upon your character, we know who you are, Jesus. Be merciful to us. And because he's merciful, he gives them permission. Because he's merciful, who is this man who even the wind and waves obey? who frees the demonized and demon-possessed, who even grants mercy to the demonic. Who is this man? So he gives them permission, and the unpleen spirits come out, and they enter the pigs, and the herd numbering about 2,000 rush down the steep bank into the sea, and they drown in the sea. Now, we have all kinds of questions here, right? Like the pigs leave, The whole herd runs down the mountain. They go into the sea and the pigs drown. Did the demons drown? I don't know. I have no idea. Do demons die like that? I don't know. So you'd think you'd be like looking over the mountain like, what happened to the pigs? But now it tells us the what. How do people then respond to this? Look at verse 14. The herdsmen, okay, the herdsmen means these are the, Folks who owned the pigs, okay, they're watching this whole thing go down, and then they're like, <laughs> I can't think of pigs without thinking, I, I'm, I'm a father of four, my two little girls love this show called Peppa Pig, I don't know how many of you guys know, you, you guys know that show? Okay, few of you, so let me explain it to you. It's a cartoon that came out of Britain that are about these pigs who speak in British accents, and it's like really simple, like a pig that like a fourth grader could draw. And, and they're making ridiculous amount of money on it. So my girls are always like, turn on Peppa, turn on Peppa. So I've gotten to this point where cartoons drive me crazy. I've got to be really honest with you, they drive me crazy. So I've gotten to this point where I'll play with my girls and they'll turn on Peppa and I'll go, turn off the pigs. And I say it like that. And then my girls, four and three, go, I like the pigs. Right? And I'm convinced as I read this passage that the herdsmen are watching like, but we like the pigs, right? (laughs) That's our livelihood. (laughs) Dead pigs, right? I'm convinced of that. So the herdsmen watch this. They're like, oh my goodness. The herdsmen flee, and they tell in the city and in the country. They told it. What did they tell? And people came to see what had just happened. And they come to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man the one who had legions sitting there. Now, they go tell the story, and the people don't go running and go, where are the pigs? They don't go to see the pigs. They go to see Jesus. The whole passage shows you it's about Jesus, and the effect of what happened is all about Jesus. They go to see Jesus. Now, I'm convinced the, the herdsmen are still there like as it's really settling in going, but what about the pigs? Right? Like This is a big deal, but they're still fascinated. And as they walk up to Jesus, look at the reaction. It says, they go, they came to Jesus, verse 15, and they see the demon-possessed man. Well, now this is interesting. The one who had the legion sitting there. Now, before, this man was there, right? But he was standing, running around, standing. Now he's sitting. He's not standing, running like crazy. He's sitting there. He's clothed, which Luke told us he was naked before. And obviously, this passage means now he's clothed. He was naked. He was naked. Now he's clothed, and he's in his right mind. Before he was psychotic, he was crazy. And it says they are afraid. They look at Jesus, they see the man sitting there, and they're like, that's the crazy, psychotic, dangerous man. But he's sitting there, peaceful, clothed, cleaned up. Before they had seen him, he was lacerating his body with dried blood and fresh blood all over his body. And now he's sitting there, and he's in his right mind, likely talking, and even probably telling his story, and they are afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what they had had happened to the demon-possessed man. So they're looking, going, how did this happen? And the herdsmen and the disciples are like, you will not believe what just happened. Jesus encountered this man. He came upon the beachhead of this man's life who had been taken by Satan, and he set this captive free. what had happened to the demon possessed man and they said and here's how it happened and the pigs and to the pigs and here's what their response is and now they begin to beg Jesus to leave they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region that's one response to the encountering of the real Jesus now as Jesus was getting into the boat the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with them. So look at this, there's two responses. In this passage, there's three points of begging. The demons beg for mercy, they get it. The people of the city beg for him to leave the city, they get it. The man begs to be with Jesus. Do you see the two opposite responses? You encounter the real Jesus, you either beg for him to leave and you run away from him, or you beg to be with him. You beg for him to leave, or you beg to be with him. Because there's cost to this, right? That's why people beg him, will you please just leave? We were a lot more comfortable. It all made a lot more sense. You're pretty freaky, you're scary. Their fear leads to say, leave. This man goes, please Jesus, let me be with you. You have liberated my entire life. You've given me sight. You've proclaimed to me good news. You've displayed to me good news. I want to be with you. Now here's what's amazing. That man begs to be with him, and Jesus doesn't permit it, but he said to him, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the man went and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. See, Jesus knew something. He didn't not answer this man's prayer. He said, when you come to me, nobody encounters me and ends up with me that I don't send radically out. You confess to me, even as the demons did, who I was. I displayed for you who I was, that I am Lord and Savior. I have healed you and restored you, not for you to sit, but for you to go and to be sent. And this man is sent to the Gentiles. Many people would say the Apostle Paul was the greatest and maybe even the first to be sent by God to the Gentiles. But it actually was the Gerasene demoniac who was the first man sent to proclaim and to testify to whom Jesus was and what he had done on their behalf. Jesus knew in that moment when he said, not now, I'm sending you. He knew that very soon he was gonna become very much like the Gerasene demoniac, he was gonna be taken out to the tombs. He was the one that was gonna be crying out, not just into the air, but to God the Father, saying, Father, Father, if there is any other way, he knew that he was gonna end up on a cross with all of hell, all of the fury of hell, of Satan's sin and death poured upon him, crying out and begging to God, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? with dried blood and fresh blood all over his body, that he would be dead, died, buried. And on the third day, he would rise again, and he would ascend into heaven, and as he had promised all of those who would follow him, lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age as I send my spirit. He knew, I will get in this boat, and as I send this man, he will be with me. He did grant the man's request even though in the moment it didn't look like it. And this man was sent, and that is the normal Christian life, Redemption Tempe. It is us going to Christ. Think about this as we end. If God the Father, through his son Jesus Christ, granted the request for mercy by the demons, how much more will he grant it for us based upon what he has done for us in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Look at this passage. This is what the author of Hebrews means in Hebrews chapter four when he says this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, this proactive God who comes to us, the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. As the demoniac man received mercy, If the demons receive mercy, church, how much more is he telling us with boldness and confidence to come now, whoever you may be, to find mercy and grace and help in your time of need. And you come to him and he will restore, rebuild, reward, and send us to testify and to proclaim that message. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy to us in Christ. God, I pray that we might see and know the love of the Father as displayed in Jesus the Son. God, I pray for those who are here right now that are scared, God, that they would come begging to be near you, not begging for you to leave. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.